If you'll uh, just open to Acts 17, we'll kind of launch from there here in a bit. Acts 17. We're studying through the Apostles' Creed for uh, the next number of weeks. And and a creed simply signifies um, a, a brief summary statement of what we believe as Christians that which we believe is a church, where it is, we are his church, we're his people. So we have this brief, these brief summaries um, written down um, over time, uh, again, as a summary of what we believe. And we want to begin by thinking about uh, the phrase that opens the creed, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty. Belief, as we all know, is used in uh, various ways. And here it means uh, the ascent of the mind, the ascent of the heart, to uh, doctrines that are expressed throughout the creed, which, of course, um, come from the living word of God. And when we repeat it, we declare uh, that we accept and adopt um, all the statements in which the creed covers. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made. So faith, of course, differs from knowledge. There are things that we we know to be true, and there are others uh, for which we say we believe them to be true. Scripture says quite clearly, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. Paul realized that you know, all men believe that God exists. And as he walked through Athens on one day, and confronted the philosophers of the day, uh, he said this as he addresses these philosophers, these philosophers uh, in Acts 17, beginning in verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I have passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now what Paul does when he preaches there in Athens um, is similar to what he writes to the church in Rome in Romans 1, which we'll look at in a bit. 
And that is this, that God has surrounded mankind. He's invading them and has invaded them by way of general revelation. Paul, if you notice here, he's not trying to prove the existence of God. But, but instead, he, he talks about God. He talks about his creation. He talks about accountability to this God. And he goes on to talk about resurrection and the day of judgment. And in fact, he, he tells them that all their objects of worship are evidence enough of God's, exist, of God's existence. And it's evidence, as he points out, that they've actually taken and twisted. Man has that tendency to take things and to to, to pervert them, to corrupt them. And because of your sinful hearts, he says, you've made idols that you fall down and worship. Now, the Bible makes this, this astounding claim about man that uh, he has a definite knowledge about God. It might not be certain, but he definitely has knowledge of his maker. And in that sense, all men are basically God believers, whether they acknowledge it or not. Man's problem, however, ever since Genesis 3 and uh, his his subsequent depravity from from the fall of Adam, uh, man's knowledge as a result of the one true God, is dreadfully distorted uh, and confused. Although every single human being, the Bible tells us, has this innate awareness with regard to God's existence. That is, they have a, a consciousness about God. And it's a direct result of the Imago Dei, that every man, every woman is made in the image of God. That includes the awareness that he is. Now, although that knowledge resides in every human being, that knowledge is contorted, it is corrupted, it is confused, and that is the truth that is made very clear also by way of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church in Rome. He said this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Against, un, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Then, of course, they go on, as as Paul writes, to to make idols. Um, And they worship them. They worship creation rather than the creator. So we know the scripture says it's the fool who says there is no God, and it is also the fool who creates for himself an idol, his own gods. Now, here at Pacific Hope Church, uh, we are a Bible-believing church. I mean, that's why you're here, right? Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. 
We believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Uh, that is a fundamental fact. That is Christianity 101. Okay, we believe in God. Amen. Uh, this question is a little more intriguing, though. And that is, what kind of God do you believe in? You know, are we locking arms with Jews and Muslims who believe in one God? As opposed to those who don't believe in God. Or at least they say they don't. Are we locking arms to stand against atheism and saying we believe in God? We're professing the God of this creed, the Apostles' Creed. Because this is how he's revealed through Scripture. He's not an impersonal deity. He's not the God of pantheism that that sees God uh, as the universe or sees the universe as God. It's not... A belief that sees God as, as a force, some kind of force. This is not God the higher power. This is not uh, the God of man's conception or you know, finite invention. This is the God of the Bible. This is the Christian God. This is the sovereign creator, omnipotent redeemer. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if this is not the God in whom one believes, they have no business confessing this creed. And how many people throughout the world confess the Apostles' Creed and do not believe in this God? It's become this rote habit. You know, I quoted J.I. Packer last week, and he said, in the Bible... The great divide is between those who believe in the Christian God and those who serve idols, other gods. That is, whose images, whether metal or mental, do not square with the self-disclosure of the Creator. This is the God who is, amen? He is not impersonal. He's incredibly intimate. Demonstrating himself to us, um, revealing himself in very personal ways by way of condescending to those he reveals himself to. So having said that, uh, we're we're completely dependent upon God for his self-revelation. Completely, absolutely dependent. We haven't the brains or the wherewithal to come to a true knowledge of the one true God. That's the miracle of salvation. That is the miracle of regeneration. To truly be able to believe. Without which, that is his self-disclosure, his self-disclosure to us, we would have no ability to believe. Rightly. We'd be making idols for ourselves. Whether they're metal or mental. More mental in our day. So we are initially dependent upon God and uh, thereafter ever dependent upon God as he reveals himself and continues to reveal himself 
to us by way of the living word of God. Manifest in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's solely by way of his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, and his grace that we have been given special revelation. It's not just general revelation that the world has by way of creation. But we sit here today having been granted by his grace special revelation. That's why we're here. So therefore we can say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Now, the most definite thing um, about God is that he reveals himself as Father. Look, if you will, um, I think I have these written down in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become much superior to the angels. This is the writer of Hebrews' argument. Whereas we jump down to verse 5, says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. This is why our language, this is why um, our prayers begin with Father. Now, God is not spoken of by true believers in terms that are impersonal. You know, I I believe in a higher power. You know, I believe in God. You know, God is good. God is good all the time. Define your God. Who is he? Well, he's described in scripture as the father of creation. He's defined as father of all humanity in a general sense, not in a salvific sense, which we'll get to. We read in the Old Testament, he's referred to as the father of Israel. Hosea speaks of God as father carrying Israel as a child. Yet Israel did not call God Father in their worship. They they, they never claimed that kind of intimacy as that of Father. But in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as Father over 60 times. I mean, you read that. You just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see that over and over again. And Jesus said then, if you, he's speaking to, to his disciples, those that are following him, he says, you who are evil, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus, there, he calls him the heavenly Father, his heavenly Father. You know, the parable of the prodigal son um, has uh, been referred to as also the, the parable of the waiting father. 
parable of the waiting father or the redeeming father. In Matthew 6, I think it's verse 9, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. You know, he said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not only allowed to call God Father, we're instructed to pray this way. To address him as our heavenly father. That's pretty intimate, amen? I mean, as his children. By the grace and mercy shown to us through his son. Now, in the 19th century, um, liberal theology asserted that, that God the Father was a universal claim. That is, that he, same, he is the same for, for all peoples everywhere, under all circumstances, at all times. Whether it be with or without revelation, whether it be with or without Christ his Son. But the only way the scripture reveals to know God the Father as Father in a salvific sense is to know God the Father through his Son the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the very means of our acceptance. This is how we're adopted, as his own, as his children, redeemed, adopted heirs. Paul refers to our redemption as adoption in Galatians. Chapter 4, notice he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an error, heir through God. Heir, not error, heir, sorry. <laughs> Heirs. So the first thing that we learn from, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty is that there is a, a Trinitarian um, picture being provided for us here. This is a Trinitarian fatherhood. God is the Father, not simply by virtue of his creation, speaking everything that there is into existence, but he's an eternal father. He's our eternal father by way of his eternal son. This point is made in John 5.18. When Jesus is being addressed by the Pharisees, he addresses them. He said this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, writes John. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's a good verse for... Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, when they knock on your door, who say that Jesus is not God. That's why they wanted to kill him. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father are what? We're one. They're one in essence. They're one in 
in uh, nature. So when we say, you know, I believe in God the Father, we've already begun to utter the doctrine of the Trinity. Right there. God the Father Almighty, which drives everything that follows in the rest of the creed. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-ruling, all-sovereign God who can do everything except that which is contrary to his nature, that he cannot do. In other words, one thing God can't do is lie. He is God, the Father, who possesses all power, all authority, all rulership over his created realm, the universe. He is almighty. Now, in our day... You know, feminists see calling God Father as evidence of what they say is an ancient and repressive patriarchalism. This, of course, is coming from, you know, matriarchal idealists who think that women should be running the world. God is Father. He is not referred to anywhere as God our Heavenly Mother. Amen. Can I get a witness to somebody here? (sighs) Masculine language is used throughout the Bible to define God. And it's necessary as to the reality and understanding of the Trinity itself. He is God our Father who has a Son who sent the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So to rename him or any attempt to retitle him is to forge an idol. Amen? No, no, no hyper-feminist thinking here. Amen? Trying to retitle our Creator and our Redeemer. There's masculine language in the Bible for a reason. God put it there by way of divine inspiration. The term Almighty, we see it twice in the Creed, which again uh, denotes his absolute dominance, his infinite power in operation, always. So when we say that God is the Father Almighty, we affirm that he, he, he possesses entire freedom in all that he does, in all his actions. His power is unlimited. He is omnipotently sovereign, all-powerfully sovereign. Amen? So in executing his eternal decrees, no one can possibly stay his hand. The devil can't stay his hand. There's no rebel on this earth that can stay his hand. We read in Daniel 5, for instance, 4, rather, Daniel 4. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
omnipotently sovereign is our God, our Father, the Almighty. So God the Father Almighty can can do nothing that would detract from his eternal power and Godhead. There's no limitation, there is no restriction that can be imposed on him from, from without. That is, his created order, his creatures, but only limited by himself. In other words, he cannot act in opposition to his own nature. He knows all things. He cannot be tempted with evil. He can do whatever he wills, and his will can never contradict his character, which is holy, righteous, and true. So we learn from the phrase here, I believe in God the Father Almighty, first, that God is Trinity. That's the first thing we learn. Our God is Trinity. And you know, it's sometimes, unfortunately, said that the doctrine of the Trinity is of little practical importance. And this leads to heresies such as modalism. Have you ever heard of oneness Pentecostalism? That's a heresy. They say and believe God is one, but they, they believe God is one and that, that, that he kind of hops to different offices, three different offices of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He'll hop to be the Father, and then he hops to be the Son, then he hops to be the Spirit, rather than three persons in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One nature, one essence, three persons. And what this also does, this kind of thinking, is that it takes away from the divinity of, of Jesus Christ himself. It's the, the, the very divinity of the Son that gives efficacy, or that is, gives worth to his substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, the Son had to be God, or atonement could not have been made. You know, we'll get into that when we get to, you know, I believe in the Son. So as sinners, we need pardon, amen? This we know. We need pardon. Pardon must be preceded by propitiation. That is satisfaction. Pardon is preceded by propitiation. And if Christ is not divine, there's no propitiation. There is no satisfying the Father's wrath against sin and the sinner if Jesus were not divine. So if we deny the Trinity, we deny the gospel message of salvation. Amen? Amen. We are Trinitarian through and through. And if we reject the Trinity, once again, we refuse the reality of the efficacious work of Christ's atonement. There is no atonement. More on that when we get to that part of the creed. So the statement that God is almighty it also involves the fact that all beings worldwide are, are governed and controlled by him. There is not one, as it's been said, not one rebel molecule in the universe. Amen? Everything is being carried out according to his divine, sovereign, omnipotent will. Everything predetermined in eternity will come to pass in time. Everything. He is sovereign. 
and rebellion of his creatures only serves to make his omnipotence, his power over all things even more visible. I mean, have we not seen this in the Exodus and the Pharaoh who attempts to stay God's hand? He attempts to resist his creator. And then God, you know, causes even the revolt of man to glorify him. And then the rest of God, uh, man's anarchy, God restrains by way of common grace. If God lifted his hand of restraint, there would be hell on earth. It's only because he restrains evil that things aren't as bad as they possibly can be. When he lifts his hand, for whatever reason, it's for his sovereign purposes. And this we have to remember. We'll go mad in this world. Or deeply depressed, at least. Daniel 5.21. The Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Romans 13.1. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. You can pl- complain about the president as much as you want. God sovereignly put him there. And if there's a her there, he sovereignly put her there. Which I think is just another sign of judgment according to Isaiah, I think, 3. No offense, ladies, but come on. Think of this. Puny man, puny little man, dares to stand against their sovereign creator, God the Father Almighty. This man dares to do, but their rebellion never falls on deaf ears. Amen? Look at Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Response, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So the laughter of the Almighty here is a laughter of mockery, of a rebellious creature or creatures. And then here man dares to raise his fist to God. And his laughter turns to wrath. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them with his fury. Now that promise as you read through the, that psalm, Psalm 2, moves to reveal God's ultimate intention. And that is that his son, okay, the father's son, God the Father Almighty's Son will rule and reign in glory. And that psalm, with, which begins with God laughing in mockery of little puny man raising his fist to God, gathering kings of the earth to do so, concludes with a glorious invitation. Psalm 
2, verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath, notice this, is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Taking refuge in the Son is the glorious, loving gift of the Father. See, friends, we have to remember, and I I think I mentioned this last Lord's Day. I don't remember if it was in the sermon or in the Sunday school lesson. Oftentimes we have this picture of Jesus loving us, trying to earn God the Father's love for us. Wrong. That's erroneous thinking. The reason that Jesus has come to save us is because of the love of the Father for us. Never see God the Father as scowling down upon you and Jesus trying to gain the accolades of the Father for you. Amen? Do not think like that. It's unbiblical. It's the love of the Father that has given the Son. God the Father Almighty. So... To conclude, we learn from this phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, first, that God is Trinity. Secondly, we learn that God the Father is omnipotently sovereign. He's almighty. Third, we learn from the phrase that God is the creator and we are obligated to him. Every human being is obligated to him. We'll see more more of that next time. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And fourth, we learn that God is redeemer. He is our redeemer. It is God who so loves that he gives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, So the love of God the Father is a love of bounty. A bountiful love. It's a descending love. It's a condescending love. We'd agree with that, wouldn't we? God condescends to love his rebellious creatures, his elect, to provide an atonement like this. So we have to remember God the Father is characterized by his infinitely gracious, ever tender, compassionate, and loving nature. And John Owen, the great John Owen, who if you ever want to read some very deep, rich, loving thoughts with regard to our loving Heavenly Father, you can read his work on communion with God. Communion with God. Because John Owen saw in his day, back in the 1600s, uh, the same thing that, that Christians struggle with today, and that is to not see God the Father as loving. And John Owen says this, This, knowing God's love like this, is the great discovery of the gospel. Amen? That's beautiful. This is the great discovery of the gospel. So when we say that God the Father 
is almighty, that does not mean that the Son and the Holy Spirit are not almighty. Amen? They are one in essence and nature. So the Father is almighty because he's God. The Son who's one with the Father is God, therefore he's almighty. And the Holy Spirit, who was sent by the Son, is therefore also almighty. God the Father, almighty. So in the unity of the Godhead, the same attributes mark the three persons of the Trinity. I believe in God the Father, almighty. Amen? So that's it for today. That's enough, I'd say. He is almighty. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are indeed almighty, gracious, loving, merciful to condescend in such a way to not only send your Son, but to reveal to us our depravity and desperate need for your redeeming love shown through your Son by way of your Holy Spirit given to us also in your grace and mercy. So we thank you for your redeeming love. We thank you that you are almighty, sovereign, omnipotent over all things, including us, your redeemed. Help us to understand this more fully as we study in these weeks to come. And bless this truth to the hearts of your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.